thank you for uh, worshiping with us. We are right smack in the middle of a three-week series on the book of Philemon, and I'm going to be reading our scripture today from Philemon chapter 1, verses 8 to 20, and if I could ask you if you're able to please stand for the reading of God's word. Again, Philemon chapter 1, verse 8 to 20, this is really the body and the heart of, of this letter that Paul writes to his partner, uh, Philemon. So give your undivided attention to God's holy, his inerrant, and his infallible word, starting with verse 8. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might, be, might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. And this is God's word for us. You could take your seats. Uh, so our spiritual theme and spiritual ministry focus for this past uh, ministry year has been uh, healing and wholeness in Christ, having people restored in our walks with the Lord and being restored as a community in our relationships and to some level in different various degrees. All our sermon series are trying to touch base upon that very spiritual focus and theme. And so Philemon, as Pastor Andrew has so excellently and eloquently introduced this series, brings in a restoration about relationships being transformed. What does reconciliation and what does forgiveness look like? Because if you remember the context, Philemon had a slave in Onesimus. Onesimus probably stole money from his master, and he ran away, went over to Rome, and by God's providence became a Christian in some form from the Apostle Paul. And now Paul is sending Onesimus back to Philemon, but he's writing this letter to say, okay, Philemon, you're probably angry. He stole from you. You lost your servant. You lost a lot of money. You may have felt offended. I'm sending him back to you. He's been useful to me, but I'm sending him back to you. Please receive him like you would receive me as a brother. It's about reconciliation. The commentator Ken Hughes says about the book or the letter of Philemon, the letter to Philemon was the most brilliantly nuanced, compelling letter of reconciliation in ancient history. It is a model of grace and charm. If you want to know the shortest letter of the Apostle Paul is Philemon. If you want to know the most nuanced and savvy letter of the Apostle Paul, arguably, is the letter of Philemon. Philemon shows us the Apostle Paul at his finest, with his smooth words, his rhetorical strategy, the way that he's able to convince someone in a difficult situation to follow the gospel. It's his most personal, intimate of all his letters. He talks as a friend, 
He encourages as a pastor. He encourages as a brother. I like to say that Philemon, when you read these verses, he's giving us a clinic on a personal pastoral plea. A personal pastoral plea. Personal pastoral persuasion on how to get two guys to reconcile. And so I think there's so much for us to learn about how to do that, because one thing I know for sure, even though I don't know everyone well, you have had falling outs with people. You have offended them, and people have offended you. And the gospel is all about reconciliation, and it's honest about the hurt and the pain of that. So how do we learn as Christians to reconcile and have restored relationships? Well, I think there are three things we can learn from the Apostle Paul's personal pastoral persuasion. First, Paul appeals in love to Philemon. It's a loving appeal. He doesn't command, he's pleading with them. Secondly, he does this in the context of deep, intimate community, something that can only be had in the gospel of Jesus. And then thirdly, he says, I want a beneficial refreshment. I'm going to appeal to you. We have this deep community, but I want you to also bless me, and I want you to refresh me. So let's look at those three sort of factors and paradigms, sort of uh, purposes in this personal pastoral persuasion. First, let's look at the Apostle Paul's loving appeal, a loving appeal. He has a big ask. He does it in a way that he works through relationships and not through authority. If you didn't realize this, verses 18 to 14 form one coherent unit. It forms one sort of section that Paul writes about reconciliation. It's a unit because in the beginning of 8 to 14, he talks about love. And at the end of 8 to 14, he wants them, he wants Philemon to do this as a voluntary act. So it's really bookended by this concept and idea of love. Let's read verses 8 to 9. It says, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner for Christ Jesus. And then at the end of this section, in verse 14, he says this, But I prefer to do nothing without your consent, in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. So in the beginning of the section, he says, I appeal to you by love. At the end, I want you to do this out of love. He appeals through love and wants Philemon to do this voluntarily. This is what it tells us about reconciliation. Sometimes when you go to people... You approach them not based on authority or based on retribution or force or fear, but you approach them through love, through relationship, through tenderness. Paul says there, I'm bold enough in Christ to command you. Bold means there's an openness. He had this level of authority, a freedom to speak whatever was on his heart. It may mean that he was also an apostle, so he had a level of status. He had a command, basically saying, listen, I could command you, but I'm going to plead with you. I'm an apostle, one of the 12. I saw Jesus. I'm an apostle. I have an authority. I have a status. I have the credentials, but I'm not going to command you. I'm going to, I want to plead with you. I'm asking you to do this because you're a good guy. You love people. That's what bold means. Even when he says appeal, he says, I'm not going to command, I'm going to appeal. Appeal means I'm going to persuade you. I want to talk to you. I want to be able to plead with you. It's almost like I'm going to beg you. And what that means for us, friends, is that whatever relationship that you have, that you want it to be restored and to be reconciled, 
It means that through love and through appeal, you take time to reflect in what other people are in. You think that you take time to reflect how other people are feeling. You place yourself in their shoes. You think about how they perceive the problem, not you. And you think about how they would think and perceive yourself. That's what it means to be loving and to appeal to them. And the gospel gives us this wonderful insight in the way that Christianity only can into the human condition and the nature of humanity and people. We have to understand that the gospel and the word of God allows us to be loving and persuading and appealing because the gospel helps us to understand the secrets of human personality. You should understand yourself and people in ways that no one else can apart from Jesus Christ. And you can do this through a loving plea. Paul basically says that and then says, I could tell you to do this, but I'm pleading with you. And when you read through this, he's it just is such a, a savvy rhetorical strategy. You know, he writes this letter. He doesn't even tell Philemon what he's going to ask until later on, where he says, basically, take back the slave who stole from you. He's patient. He tries to use words to nuance the conversation. And you have to understand, most likely, when Paul sent this letter back, it was probably read in the context of the church. So Onesimus is probably there in worship, and Philemon's also sitting in the stands. It has to be a very delicate letter. I mean, imagine that Philemon finally sees the guy who ripped him off, and now you have this letter that's encouraging Philemon publicly. His name is in this letter. It's literally if I come up here and I know there's a falling out of two people and I call out their situation and I name your names and I say, you have to actually reconcile. That's a very delicate situation. And so Paul begins and says, hey, I could tell you to do this, but I'm asking you, I'm pleading with you on the basis of love. And then he adds in verse 10, man, I'm an old man and I'm in prison in the Greco-Roman world, old age conveyed helplessness and dependence on others. So Paul is very personal here. He says, I'm an old man. Now, I could tell you to do this, but I'm not. He had the status and he had the age. Paul easily could say, listen up, I'm older than you. He could have been ageist or he could have been about his apostleship. He said, listen, I'm an apostle. I'm older than you. You better do this. You know, you're foolish. Take him back. Trust me on this. He doesn't do this. He had age and he had status but he was patient, he was persuasive, he was pleading, and he was loving. He had all of this, but the gospel compelled him in his wisdom and his understanding of humanity. I'm going to plead with you, Philemon, take this slave back, your servant. In other words, friends, the first lesson that we learn in any reconciliation is that you don't always have to work through legal relationships or formal relationships, but you can work through familial relationships, family relationships, because our relationships to one another is completely grounded in our relationship to Jesus. And our gospel relationships creates expectations and obligations to one another that go beyond normal etiquette in law. That's why Paul doesn't use Greco-Roman law. He doesn't use Old Testament law because it's in there. He says there's something that transcends this, and that's the law of love. I'm old enough to tell you to do this. I have authority and the status to tell you to do this. But I'm going to do this on the basis of transformed, transcending gospel love. Philemon, please take him back. You're a good guy. He's not the same man anymore. Take him back. I'm pleading you with love. And the second thing we learn, Paul does this because he knows his people, he knows his community, 
And he knows that he can make this sort of request because there's such a safe and intimate community that the church has, and even his relationships. You have to think about this. It's basically three people, and Paul's working through relationships. He's saying, I have a relationship with Onesimus. He's my son. I have a relationship with Philemon. He's my partner. And you guys have a relationship that used to be legal, but in the gospel now it's been transformed and it's familial. He's working through relationships, intimate community. Let me just give you a sense of the kind of intimate community that I pray our church could have, but it's peppered throughout the languages and the key words of these verses. It's not legal language, but family language. It's not, family, it's not formal language, but familial language. So, for example, verse 10, Paul says, my child. Verse 12, my heart. Verse 16, beloved brother. Verse 17, my partner. Verse 20, he's my brother. Familial language. And the reality of these relationships came about because of this guy named Jesus in the gospel of grace that changed and transformed their relationships. They were able to have such intimate relationships because of the grace of Jesus. That's why in verse 8, I am bold enough in Christ. Verse 9, I'm a prisoner for Christ. Verse 16, he's a brother in the Lord. Verse 20, do this for me. I'm asking for some benefit because you're a brother in the Lord and in Christ. Everything around these verses is intimate family relationship. The only way that you can get this, friends, that the world can never offer you, is in Christ, in these relationships. They're patterned after the gospel. Even verses 17 to 19, Paul addresses Philemon as a partner. That word there, partner, in the Greek is something called koinonon, which is the same root word in verse 6, where we get the word sharing or fellowship. So he says a deep, intimate kononia, sharing, a partnership, a service, a mutual ministry to one another, a give and take, a communion in Christ. So when Paul reminds Philemon of their partnership, he's talking about a profound bond that transcends this world into eternity, spiritual and intimate, leaking them in union and communion, participation, fellowship, service and sharing, and sacrifice in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why the heart of this reality and this intimacy is why Paul can say in verse 12, when I send you Onesimus, what does he say? I'm sending you my heart. See, it's okay for all of us to be vulnerable and to use words of intimacy. He says, I'm sending you my heart. You ever have anyone that you feel like, he's my heart, she's my heart, a child, spouse, a good friend? You feel like your heart is aching, and when they go away and they move away, it it hurts, it burns, it, in, your, in the inside of your gut, it hits you really hard or you can't breathe because there's so much a part of you. That's literally what that word means, heart. It means your, your internal organs, your, your innards, your bowels. It's the seed of your emotions, a deep love and sympathy from your soul. The total personality at the deepest level of who you are. Paul is saying, because of the gospel, I'm sending Onesimus. He stole from you. He ripped you off. But I'm sending you the deepest seat of my heart. I'm sending you myself in this intimate relationship of community. I listened to this podcast about a couple of weeks ago. This guy named Kerry Newhoff. Some of you may know him or not. And he was interviewing this Christian author, her name is Jenny Allen, and she came out with this book called Find Your People. 
And I thought the podcast was interesting because I'm always attracted towards different insights about friendship and community. And so she wrote this book, and Carrie Newoff asks her in this interview, tell us about how you find relationships and cultivate deep, real, vulnerable community. Her book that she came out that talks about this is called Find Your People. And through the interview, she basically said this, you can't do life with everyone. It's impossible. You can't do life in the same way with everyone. There will be your inner circle, your outer circle, and then you can have people that you genuinely love, but they're more just friendship acquaintances. But she says for your inner circle, she says there are, I think, five factors that you need and ultimately to cultivate a deep-seated community like we see with the Apostle Paul, Onesimus, where people can be your heart. And these are the five things that she says are naturally there. You don't need all five, but at least three or five, three to four sometimes works. But she says, in her opinion, this is what you need. First of all, you need intimacy. You need to be fully known and fully accepted. You need intimacy. Secondly, you need accountability. You got to give permission to people in your life to speak hard truth. You know, maybe being primarily an Asian culture, we're not really too good at that. We're more shame-based, more conflict avoidance. You want real life-giving relationships. You got to give permission to a handful of people to give you their, give them permission, and you got to say it. You can speak into my life. Speak into my idol. Speak into where my blind spots are. Speak into where I stuck my foot in my mouth. Speak into the areas where you see subtle tendencies of gravitating a little bit too much towards power and money and craving people's approval. But you got to speak and say, I give you permission to do that. Accountability. Thirdly, he says, you need consistency. Because every relationship is going to fall out. Whenever you have a falling out in a relationship, you have a decision. I'm going to give up on community, isolate myself, and that certainly will be towards the path of destruction, or you're going to be consistent and say, I'm going to work this relationship out even though I gave you my heart and you mangled it. Consistency. And then fourthly, it says it helps to have proximity. And if you're closer, you know, Zoom in this day and age and social media, it helps, but it's different because when your friend is hurting, it's much easier to drive over and give a meal. You can't do that if you're just Zooming with your close friend across the country. And the fifth one hit me most. She says, it helps to have mission. Because when you just have friendship and you're talking to each other, it gets stale. It sort of falls out. You need a hobby. You need a vision. You need a ministry. You need a, a mission. Intimacy, accountability, proximity, consistency, and mission. Friends, the only way that you're going to get even three of those is going to be in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He changes and transforms you and allows you to do this because Jesus knows you most intimately. His word will hold you in the deepest accountability. He's the most faithful and consistent. His spirit is within our hearts. He's always with us by our union with Jesus. He puts us on a mission, not just the great one in Matthew 28, but in every day of our lives where we're other-centered and loving and living for the gospel and for the glory of Jesus Christ. And when you have all of this vertically in Jesus, it could flesh itself out horizontally with one another. Jesus is the only one who could create this. We see this even in the life of Onesimus and Philemon. The reason is because Onesimus he left Philemon as a non-Christian. Paul sends him back as a Christian. In other words, when Onesimus left Philemon, he left as a one man. Paul sends him back as a new man. He is a new creation. 
Verse 11 says this, Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. This is Paul's savvy and brilliance. He says he was useless to you, but now he's useful. Do you know what the name Onesimus means? Useful. In other words, he was not Onesimus to you when he left. I'm sending him back to be Onesimus to you now. He was useless. Now he's coming back as useful. He went out as one man, and Paul sends him back as a new man. That's what happens to all of us. We're transformed and changed. Philemon loses a slave, but you know what he gains? A brother. Useless to useful. This is why it speaks into us. This is the brilliance of what Paul is trying to say. Some of you feel useless in this world. And maybe it's a worldly perspective. I'm not that smart. I'm not that charismatic. I'm not that educated. I'm not that rich. Some of you feel a little bit too useful. Why am I not being used and asked my opinion more than I should be? Either you feel useful or you feel useless. Either you're prideful or you're in despair. The gospel speaks to both. It speaks to those who think they're too useful, and he also speaks to those who think they're useless. Because the same Jesus that dealt with the useful will also deal with the useless. We have two living examples in this letter. Onesimus was useless, and God made him useful. The apostle Paul, before he was a Christian, writing this letter, he would fall in the prideful, useful category. Before Paul was actually a Christian, you know his story. He was educated. He had the best professors and teachers. He was a man among men. He had the best family tree. He came from the tribe of Benjamin. On the worldly level, he had status. He had credentials. He had education. And you know what? He had connections. He had everything. He, he was the man. He was the leading Jew when they were persecuting the church, and even after he became a Christian, he wrote the most number of letters in the New Testament, the greatest missionary, the greatest preacher, the greatest church planter. You know what? He was useful beyond all wild imagination, but you know what? He was humble because the gospel speaks to the useless like Onesimus and also humbles the useful like the apostle Paul. And when the gospel is able to speak into this, then and only then you could have and cultivate what Jenny Allen talks about in her book, Find Your People. And that's what we have only in the gospel. Only Jesus can make that. Hobbies will die out. Business ventures will die out. Vacations will die out. Common human interests can help, but ultimately will die out. There's only one eternal lasting reality that will allow you to cultivate this level of community. And it's going to be the one who is useful in saving you and me from the depths and the grips of hell, Jesus Christ. And that leads us finally to our last point. Paul makes a loving appeal. He says, in Jesus, we have this intimate community. But lastly, Paul, he's not bashful. He says, I want something from you. I want a benefit. He says, I want something. Verse 20, Paul ends and says this, Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Refresh. Friends, this is a very easy application. Are you a refreshment to people? Are you a refreshment? Do you benefit people? In the second grade, I was living in Oklahoma. I remember in the second grade, in the summertime, the Fridays were my favorite day of the school week because on Fridays, we had refreshments. <laughs> An hour of reading any book that you want, bring in cookies, crackers, you get a cup, a plastic one, you pour Kool-Aid in there or lemonade, and it was the best feeling. 
refreshments. I still like refreshments today. A drink that really satisfies, that quenches your thirst when you need it. Paul is saying, Philemon, can you be that for me? A little bit closer to home, this past week I was talking to another ruling elder who lives and serves at a church in the PCA back in Indiana. We connected, and he wanted just to get to know each other a little bit more. He was telling me COVID was tough, but there are some bright spots, at least for him in COVID. Because everything was on lockdown, he had three of his kids that were living with him in his house. And he says it was a wonderful time because life was slower. And six nights out of the seven, six nights out of the seven in the week, his family in his entirety would have dinner out on the patio. Six nights out of the week, for seven weeks, he had grown up children, and now they were able to do this as a family, and he had a big smile on his face. Do you know why he had a smile? Because the family in that dinner was a refreshment. Are you a refreshment to people? Paul wants Philemon to benefit him and refresh his heart. Here's Paul Savvy again. The word benefit comes from the same root word as Onesimus' name, useful. And he's basically saying to Philemon, I'm sending Onesimus back to you, but now I want you to be Onesimus to me. Be a benefit. It's the same root word. Paul benefits from Philemon, and do you know how he wants to benefit from him? He wants Philemon to take Onesimus back as a brother and accept him just like you would me. Philemon's a good guy because Paul already said back in verse 7, you refresh all the saints. Refresh me by taking Onesimus back. He says, I'll pay all his debt. You take him back, I'll pay his debt. That's what he said, but refresh me. Be an Onesimus to me. Here's a quick question. Are you a refresher or are you a drainer? Are you a life giver or a life taker? Are you a user and consumer or a contributor? Well, let's try to take a look at this. This guy, Adam Grant, he was a a psychologist at University of Pennsylvania, he had, a work, he had a book called Give and Take. Are you a giver or are you a taker? And this is what I want to say about this. Are you a giver or are you a taker? Are you a life, ta- a life giver or a life drainer? These are just kind of things, be honest with yourself. If you're, if you're a taker, if you're a taker, you are, tend to be self-centric. You begin with yourself and you never move on to others. You evaluate people based on what they'll give you. You evaluate people on how much happiness that they could give you. You're a drainer. You're a taker. But if you're a giver, you tend to be more constructive than critical. You're other-centered than self-centered. You give before you take. You're an encourager and not discourager. Now, here's the thing about Adam Grant and what he says. We always think about takers and givers, but there's a third category that he says most people are on, and they're matchers. They like to preserve an equal balance of giving and taking. Their mindset is, if you take from me, I'll take from you. It's tit for tat. If you give to me, I'm going to give back to you. So there's givers, there's takers, and there's matchers. And most people are matchers, and they navigate this. And the lines between givers, takers, and matchers are not that black and white. They kind of blend into one another. Let me ask you a question here. What are Christians supposed to be, givers, takers, matchers? My guess, if we did a survey, the majority of you would say Christians are supposed to be givers because the church is always asking us to give. Give your money, give your time, give your gifts. This is what I'm going to say. Christianity doesn't even fall in that paradigm. 
It may look the same, but it's a completely different paradigm. This is what Jesus does for you. I think you actually have to be all three. But in the gospel, you're no longer just a giver, but you're a sacrificer. In the gospel, you're not just going to be a taker, but you're going to be a receiver. You have to receive the grace and the gifts of others. And in the gospel, you're not just going to be a matcher, but now you're going to be transformed as a partner. The motivation and the nuance and the color and the the consistency and the nature of how these relationships are all changed can only be had in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul shows us. He's so savvy. You know what he does? He says, okay, I'm going to send Onesimus back to you. Philemon, I want you to be Onesimus to me. Later he says, take Onesimus back. If he has any debts, I'll pay that credit. But Philemon, don't forget, you owe me your life. Man, what do you do with this for Philemon? Take Onesimus back. That's going to take a toll in my heart. Any money I lost on Isimus, Paul says he'll pay it, but then he says, I also owe him my life. Givers, takers, matchers, sacrificers, receivers, partners. Verse 17 basically saying, treat Onesimus as if you were me, Philemon. Charge me. Philemon, charge me with Onesimus's debt. I'll take his penalty. I'll pay the credit card. Give him the credit, I'll pay the bill. The other day I was at having breakfast with a couple in Orange at this restaurant called Snooze, and the couple wanted to pay for my breakfast. I was like, no, I'm going to pay for breakfast. Fighting over, as typically is true of Asians, I'm going to pay this, and then you're going to pay. We fight over actually paying the bill. Bill comes out from the waiter, and she says, actually, somebody else already paid it. <laughs> and we look back at another table, and there's another church member. <laughs> we received... He paid the credit. That's what Paul's saying. I'll pay the credit, but take him back. Isn't that reflective of the gospel? It's actually a mirror image of what Jesus has done for us in real time. The self-giving of the Lord Jesus Christ who paid all our debts upon the cross by his blood. And then we get credited all his righteousness to our account by faith. Give the sinner the credit, Jesus says, I'll pay that penalty. As Martin Luther put it, we are all God's Onesimuses. Jesus paid, we all received. And if you see this transaction happen, if you realize that your relationships could be changed because he could be a refresher, you could benefit people, but you could also receive out of love and thankfulness, and it can be in partnership like Philemon and Paul were for the church, your relationships could be different. You'll be on mission. You know what, friends? You'll experience and fly in this life in a way that you can never have experienced before. Because Martin Luther, the great reformer, was absolutely right. Because of Jesus Christ, we are all Onesimuses. Jesus paid the penalty. We'll take the credit. Let's turn to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. Oh, Lord, we thank you. Because he sent your son Jesus to pay our debts, to pay the penalty for our sins. And by true faith-based grace, he credited to our account the righteousness of Jesus' work for us. We're cleansed, we're made holy, we're white as snow. May we be able to appeal to one another in love. May we cultivate a deep, real, honest community with our friends, our family, and our church, brothers and sisters. May we truly be a refreshment to one another. May we benefit from each other and receive refreshment from each other, all because of what Jesus has done for us. We thank you, Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.